<laughs> that is one big pile of shit. Uh, this could be it. We may be in some multiverse where I don't even exist. Don't knock rationalization. Where would we be without it? Yes, yes. Yes, without the use. To take them, take them out, take them down. Do your, do your stuff. Life uh, finds a way. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of The Complete Works, a deep dive into the career and films of actor Jeff Goldblum. My name is Mike Smith and joining me on this journey into the wondrous world of Goldblum is my friend, co-host and fellow Goldblum maniac, Mike Tricia. How are you doing today, Mike? Uh, I'm doing okay, as okay as you can expect, uh, you know, having to pretend everything's normal during an ongoing queue. So that's very fun sure. to be living through. Uh, but like, you know. I'm okay. I'm healthy so far. Nothing bad has happened to me personally. Uh, so we count it as a win. You know, it's yeah. a one day at a time. On a micro level, you're doing all right. Yeah, I'm doing okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I'm also uh, doing okay. Thanks for asking, Mike. Uh, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, I do sometimes ask. Yes, you do. You do sometimes ask. I'm doing okay. <laughs> kind of in the same uh, boat as you are. Like, yeah, there's a lot of crazy shit happening in the world right now as it feels like there has been for a very long time but yeah uh, you know on a micro you know personal level yeah things are fine over here yeah there's uh, i keep seeing a lot of this sentiment going around that's just uh i'm tired of living through a major historical event yeah um and it's been that way for four years so <laughs> <laughs> we're so close yeah so there's that uh but yeah how you been mike i mean uh we, we've been in contact because we've, we've been doing mike might go to the movies but this podcast has been off for a couple of weeks now yeah i mean i i am afraid to say i missed having more to do but I kind of miss the Goldblum pod. Yeah, once it, once you take a few weeks off, you uh, you start to reflect on your time with Jeff Goldblum, and you start thinking, oh, I can't wait to get back and uh, start watching some Goldblum movies again. I wonder what my tall, beautiful friend is doing. <laughs> uh, well, we are going to find out what he was doing in 1996, specifically. Uh, <laughs> before we get into that, I do want to make an announcement on this podcast. Uh, we're back for another year. So first of all, quick announcement. Some listeners may know, before this was a Jeff Goldblum podcast, this was Nicholas Cage podcast. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And we talked about Nicholas Cage for four years uh, before finally catching up with him, because back then we were only doing an episode every two weeks. Uh, so it took us a lot longer to get through an actor. Uh, and we used his last film in 2018, Between Worlds, as a cutoff point. Uh, but now Mike and I have kind of started discussing this in the background. So Nicholas Cage has made a bunch more movies and he's kind of in the middle of what we're calling the cage assance right now. Yes, of course. <laughs> Who could forget? Uh, exactly. And uh, we we want to talk about that. I think this was like a this was kind of prompted by the trailer for uh, the history of swear words series that he did on Netflix. Right. I feel like that yes. was kind of the thing where it's like, OK, Cage has like a major presence on a Netflix series now. <laughs> I feel like I guess it's time. It might be time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stick with Goldblum for the next few weeks, uh, taking us to episode 50 of this podcast, which will be 1998's Welcome to Hollywood. Uh, it's also the last movie Goldblum starred in during the 90s. So we felt like that was a good cutoff point for now. And then after that, this podcast is reverting back to its Nicolas Cage roots. So for a few weeks, we'll be discussing all the Cage movies that got released in 2019 and 2020. And if we can squeeze in any 2021 movies, which uh, who knows how many he'll have been, he'll have released <laughs> by the time we get to them, probably like seven or eight. Uh, but I'm thinking it's probably like roughly nine or ten episodes uh, covering movies like Primal, The Crudes, A New Age, The History of Swear Words and all that stuff. And then after we catch up, we go right back to Goldblum to take on the 2000s and go straight into present day. That 
is going to be the plan going forward this year for this podcast. Yes, we had the, the kind of realization like, hey, Cage is having another cultural. I feel like every time a crazy Cage thing gets announced, he has like this kind of cultural resurgence, even though he's like an ever present meme. Sure. But it's like, oh, man, Cage is going to be in the Tiger King thing. And we were like, man, we should get back on. We should start watching. We should do Cage again. He's kind of <laughs> in the conversation, whatever. And then it's like a whole thing. And then we realized like, Episode 50 is also the last movie he makes in the decade. We, that seems like a good enough cutoff point yeah. to jump back in and watch the 10 movies he made in one year. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Exactly. It's a, a temporary break from Goldblum, and we promise we're going to get back to it. But, uh, you know, it, it, it'd be nice to uh, take a stroll with our old friend Nicolas Cage for a little while. Like wa- watching the History of Swear Words trailer, I was like, oh, man. Cage, he's back. <laughs> like, love this guy. Like, I, I feel like the more you do a podcast about a certain person or whatever, like the more you end up rooting for them, like just in general. Uh, yeah. and, and so you're watching the trailers. And I remember actually I was recording the we were doing the the Mike Mike uh, top discoveries of the year. And we were talked about our top movies of 2020 and Colorado Space popped up in both of our lists. So I was like rewatching clips from Colorado Space and like re marveling at how insane his performance is in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mean perfect. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Uh, I got to rewatch that at some point. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, diving back into the cage. Or what do we used to say? Getting in the cage, I think. Getting in the cage. Crude's cast rides again. <laughs> Crude's cast will ride again. That's also the other main reason we want to bring the cage podcast yeah. back is because we got to talk about the Crude's, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I missed I missed what Grug is doing, and it's going to be great to see him again. Oh, yeah. Our old friend Belt and uh, <laughs> Grug and whoever Ryan Reynolds character is. I think his name is Guy. I think it's Guy. I think it's yeah. Guy. Ugg. I think Ugg is a character in Crudes. Uh, so there's that sounds right. There's that. There's, uh, I'm looking forward to the Crudes a new age when we finally get to that. That's going to be a few months from now, probably. In the meantime, still got a lot of Goldblum movies to get through. I think seven or eight until we uh, officially reach our break. Uh, so for now, let's enter 1996 where Jeff Goldblum stars in a sports comedy written by a man pretty well-known for sports movies. It's The Great White Hype. It feels like we're going to have a meltdown. This guy hurt you at all? Not at all, not at all. He hit me one time, and that was just to wake me up because I was bored in there. Bored? Third round, that's right. And, and it, otherwise, it was just like fighting my little sister. I came to bring the pain from the brain. The world of boxing is not what it used to be. Look at you now. Who the champ now? Who the champ now? He's got a gun. Didn't I tell you you're going to get your shot? You ain't my daddy, are you? But all that is about to change. People are tired of paying good money to watch brothers beat up brothers. There ain't a white guy out there for you. I'm going to create you one. White heavyweight? It's like saying black unity. I want you to return to the ring. I don't fight anymore. I guarantee you $10 million. Now, it's the fight of the century. This man knocked out James Roper. I was 17, man. I've killed Holly Duty now. And everyone's asking the same question. Is it all? Two bucks on the clean-cut white boy. Or is it mm. tight? You got to stop eating this stuff to be in some kind of shape. Oh, I'm in shape. I'm round. Ladies and gentlemen, Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, I got a lot of pictures. Those Ooh. pictures will ruin you. Ruin me? My reputation? <laughs> Jamie Foxx. My father had told me that uh, when the green grass starts growing, you know, on the other side, then somebody got to cut the lawn. Jeff Goldblum. You know, my father said, laugh 
and and the whole world laughs with you. Cry, and I'll give you something to cry about, you little bastard. Peter Bird. I'm gonna donate all of my monies to eradicating the homelessness situations in America and as well as the United States forever. Teach Marin. It's like two moons over Miami. John Lovitz. Shut up. All right. And Damon Wayans. The heavyweight champion of the world. Y'all can kiss my big, black, bloated, Rolls Royce driving. And I'm tired of you fucking me. Yo, we got guns on you and what you got, huh? <laughs> you got a whole bunch of guns with lasers. Woo! But I mean, you know, does violence really solve anything? <laughs> Directed by Reginald Hudlin. So the Great White Hype had been in development for a few years before it finally got released and ended up in a very different place from when it began. Uh, one of the movie's credited co-writers is Tony Hendra, a British comedy writer who was one of the original writers for National Lampoon magazine uh, back in the 70s. Uh, wow. And who also appeared in This Is Spinal Tap as Spinal Tap's manager, Ian Faith. Uh, and he basically wanted to make a version of Spinal Tap that was all about the world of boxing. That was his vision for the Great White Hype. Like Spinal Tap, he wanted the whole thing to be pretty much entirely improvised. So Tony Hendra teams up with well-known sports photographer Neil Leifer on the idea, and he gets Ron Shelton involved. Now, Ron Shelton, writer and filmmaker who really specializes in sports movies, probably most notably Bull Durham and White Men Can't Jump. Those are like his two wow. big ones. Uh, so he co-writes the movie with Tony Hendra, and the plan is for him to direct, uh, with Hendra playing the part of a larger-than-life, over-the-top boxing manager. They end up doing a 15-minute improvised test to show to a studio, which featured Bill Murray in the lead role. Holy so, shit. So there's a lot going into the Great White Hype right here. This is There's a lot of backstory here. Couple of years pass. The movie gets set up at Fox. Bill Murray is no longer involved. <laughs> <laughs> but Ron Shelton rewrites the entire movie and it loses the improvised aspect. It's no longer going to be a Spinal Tap-esque thing. Uh, and the studio starts signing on some big names to the movie. And then it turns out Ron Shelton is now unavailable to direct. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> he's busy making Tin Cup, the uh, golf movie with Kevin Costner. Uh, that guy sure is a sports movie, man. That's right. <laughs> Uh, so the studio brings in a new director, uh, Reginald Hudland, who had previously directed 1990's House Party and uh, Boomerang with Eddie Murphy in 92. Immediately, the tone of the project begins to change, and the role that Tony Hendra had written for himself to play, he now has to audition for it, and he doesn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, poor guy, but that's hilarious. That is, that is pretty funny. That is Hollywood <laughs> right there. That's like... <laughs> One of those things you hear about happening in like a Hollywood satire. That's exactly what happens. I think that was an extended bit, uh, a deleted scene from the player. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so now you've got a movie that was meant to be a satire about racism within the boxing industry written by two white guys, but helmed by a black director. And the sensibilities could not be more different as a result. Shelton has said he's not a big fan of the final cut of the movie. Hendra says he likes the final cut that Reginald Hudlin made, but it's very different from what they were originally trying to do. That includes the role that Jeff Goldblum plays, which was supposedly much more substantial in the original draft of the movie. Supposedly he had a much bigger role, which you can sort of see in the yeah. final cut. Like he's he has a weirdly big role in like the back half of the movie. But the first half, he's like basically not in it. <laughs> 
Yeah, he kind of acts as like this kind of like Greek chorus kind of character right. uh, for a while. And then suddenly he's a main character. It's weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a big shift there. But uh, yeah, Goldblum plays Mitchell Kane, who's a journalist working to expose the corrupt business dealings of Reverend Fred Sultan, a Don King-esque boxing promoter played by Samuel L. Jackson, which makes this a three-peat Goldblum reunion uh, Hell yeah. after Fathers and Sons and Jurassic Park. I was looking at the three-peat Goldblum reunions we've got so far, and I have not spoiled it for myself in any way, but... But I think of all the actors that Goldman has worked with three times or more, I think the clo- I think the one that ha- is the likeliest to reach that four piece club with uh, Michael Lerner and Scott Glenn. I feel like it's got to be Sam Jackson, right? Just because <laughs> I don't I even think so. I don't even know if he's in another movie with Goldblum, but like he works so much, he probably is. <laughs> Right. Yeah, they're both in so many movies that they're the most likely. Yeah, I re- and I realized like Goldblum was in Thor Ragnarok and I was like, oh, there's a Marvel connection. Is Nick Fury in that? Nope, he's not. And that, Ooh, yeah, it's, it's one of the, it's one of like the three Marvel movies that Nick Fury is not in. Yeah. <laughs> so no Goldblum reunion there. But and uh, yeah, Goldblum not in Avengers Endgame either, even though every other actor in the world is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so three peak Goldman reunion there. Uh, Sultan is working to put together a spectacle fight to get people interested in boxing again. And he settles on getting a scrappy young white guy to face off against the black heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, the white guy, Irish Tommy Conklin, is played by Peter Berg, uh, better known today as the director of a lot of Mark Wahlberg movies. Uh, <laughs> he also uh, directed Friday Night Lights and created the TV show. Uh, but early in his career, he was a kind of character actor, starred in movies like The Last Seduction and, of course, Never on Tuesday. <laughs> Who could forget? I was going to ask, you played the clip of Last Seduction in the uh, Best of 2020 episode, and I was like, that sounds like Peter Berg. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't sure. I'm glad it is. It is Peter Berg. I think that's such a weird one to know by voice. I (laughs) I just watched Great White Hype the day before. Oh, yeah. uh, And then listened to the uh, Best of 2020 episode, and I was like, wait a second. (laughs) That's him. That is Peter Berg. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, The champ, James the Grim Reaper Roper, is played by Damon Wayans, uh, which also makes this an Earth Girls Are Easy reunion uh, for him and Jeff Goldblum. So that's kind of fun. Uh, From there, this is another one of those Goldblum movies which has everybody who's ever been in a movie in it. Uh, (laughs) Big cast for uh, for The Great White Hype. You got Corbin Burnson from L.A. Law and Psych. Uh, He he plays Peter Prince, uh, the rich guy bankrolling Sultan's crew. Uh, John Lovitz plays Sol, Sultan's marketing guy. Cheech Marin of Cheech and Chong plays Julio Escobar, another of Sultan's team. Uh, Jonathan Rice davies from Lord of the Rings and Indiana Jones. Uh, he plays Johnny Windsor, the guy training Tommy Conklin. Uh, Sally Richardson from the TV series Eureka plays Bambi, Julio's sister, who becomes a key part of Sultan's team. Uh, Michael Jace from The Shield plays Marvin Shabazz, another fighter who wants his shot at the title. And his manager, Hassan El Rukin, is played by Jamie Foxx, uh, which is yeah. wild. Uh, at this point, probably best known as a cast member on in Living Color, uh, and then, of course, became a bigger movie star much later on. Uh, Rocky Carroll from TV shows like Rock, Chicago Hope, and NCIS. He plays Artemis St. John Saint. Art Evans from Die Hard 2 appears as a minister towards the end of the movie. He was also the old guy Bradley in Trespass, the guy who gets away with the money at the end. Right! Yeah! (laughs) That's Uh, who that guy was. Yeah, exactly. And he's only in, like, 
five seconds of this movie, but there he is. He was also a police officer in Death Wish. So there's a Goldblum reunion. Whoa. <laughs> uh, plus, Nedra Valls makes her final film appearance here as Old Lady, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who you might recognize as Big Ed from Less Than the Dust, and who also appeared in Earth Girls Are Easy, which makes that another Goldblum reunion happening here. Racking them up this episode. Absolutely. Uh, so that's another one there. Plus, real-life boxing commentator Burt Sugar appears in the film, and Method Man appears as himself as Roper walks into the ring. So, uh, yeah, a lot of big names in the Great is, White Hype. Is it Brian Setzer, the guy that plays in? Who's the guy playing the guitar when Conklin comes in the uh, arena? It might be Brian Setzer, actually. I think, I, I think I, it is. I, I do remember seeing his name in association with the movie, but I I forgot to write it down. So there, there, <laughs> so it is. there you go. That uh, very well could be Brian Setzer. Uh, the Great White Hype was written by Tony Hendra and Ron Shelton and directed by Reginald Hudlin four years after his previous film, Boomerang, and four years before his next film, The Ladies' Man, based on the SNL sketch starring Tim Meadows. <laughs> <laughs> if you are rich and I've had sex with you, please meet me by the nacho stand. <laughs> That was a, th- a thing we used to say in high school all the time. I mean, you know, I used to I, I, I have seen the ladies man movie once uh, and I did not like it that much, <laughs> but I used to really like the SNL sketch like Tim. I mean, yeah. t- Tim Meadows, like maybe a top five SNL cast member for me. I mean, he's the best. And it, and I, that might even just be because of all his post SNL stuff where he's always the funniest guy in whatever he's in. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want no part of this. Yeah, I think, uh, right? Isn't he the one that does the yes, whole thing? Yeah. Do we yeah, okay. to think about his whole life before he goes up on that stage? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he's a, a pretty like uh, sleeper sleeper hit uh, SNL cast member from the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Tim Meadows is the best. He was also on the show for like 11 years. He was on there for such <laughs> yeah. a long time. It's a real Keenan kind of thing. Yeah, well, he was the Keenan Thompson of his day. Uh, and uh, Reginald Hudland was also a producer on uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, by the way. And most recently, Hudland directed a football drama called Safety, uh, which was released as a Disney Plus original just last month. Uh, came out oh, back in December. Yeah, so he's still working. Uh, the movie opened in fourth place on May 3rd, 1996, uh, a weekend which saw a few other new releases, including Barb Wire, a superhero movie starring Pamela Anderson. Wow. Uh, I've heard it's bad. The Paul Bearer also came out that weekend, a romantic comedy starring Gwyneth Paltrow and David Schwimmer, uh, which was actually the directorial debut of Matt Reeves, who went on to make uh, Cloverfield, the Planet of the Apes movies, and the upcoming Batman movie with Robert Pattinson. Right. Yeah, so that's a kind of a cool uh, historical artifact now. Uh, Last Dance, uh, a drama about a woman on death row played by Sharon Stone, which sounds a lot like the movie Richard E. Grant was making in The Player. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Super weird. Uh, And in number one that weekend, opening that week, was The Craft, uh, the cult horror movie, which just got a sequel this past year, actually, The Craft Legacy. Uh, Also in the top ten that weekend were The Truth About Cats and Dogs, The Quest, Primal Fear, The Birdcage, James the Giant Peach, and Mulholland Falls. Wow, what a stellar lineup. Yeah, an eclectic mix uh, (laughs) in the top 10 for 96. Uh, The IMDb plot synopsis for The Great White Hype reads, The boxing champ's promoter thinks change is needed. He finds the one man who's beaten his black champ at 17, a white man now in a rock band. Like Rocky, he trains heavily, whereas the champ slacks. Thanks, computer-generated plot. Yeah, that's a, a weirdly written out plot synopsis, but there you go. So, yeah. uh, Mike, what did you expect going into the Great White Hype and what were your overall thoughts on the movie? 
Um, going into it, I didn't really know a whole lot uh, of what to expect. I knew it was kind of a boxing satire type deal. Uh, you know, it's Samuel L. Jackson. You know, coming to it, it's OK, I guess, uh, overall, as like a comedy movie, which, you know, I, I didn't laugh a whole lot. There's a couple bits here and there that like got some chuckles out of me. But I, I also don't know how much of that to chalk up to me being unfamiliar with like the inner workings of the boxing world. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like gen- there's general sports stuff that like is is like entertaining and accessible but some of the things they're talking about every now and then i'm like i wonder if this would make be funnier or more entertaining if i was like kind of in the know uh there's one scene in particular where where jackson samuel jackson's character uh reverend sultan um, is is like asking like what was the highest grossing fight of all time and there's like you know they start listing a couple and i was like I don't know any of these. Like, you know, like, is the scene better if I knew these fights uh, that they're kind of guessing? Yeah. Um, and there's a couple moments like that here and there. So I don't know how much of my like boredom slash like not being particularly invested uh, is just because I'm unfamiliar and I wasn't that hooked with the comedy stuff. But like overall, it's fine. It's like inoffensive, uh, you know, seeing the kind of in living color guys, you know, Damon Wayans, Jamie Foxx, everybody, Samuel Jackson kind of just riffing with each other. Yeah. Even though I know this isn't improvised, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like just kind of bouncing off each other and John Lovitz and every, you know, just a lot of comedy chops in the movie. So on that level, it's fun. But other, uh, overall, kind of like, meh, this is another one that like I'll cross off the list and probably not really think about ever again. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I think the movie is all over the place, uh, just yeah. tonally and uh, with the amount of people that's kind of juggling. And you can you can really feel the fact that this movie had, you know, two original writers and then a new director who kind of took the movie in a different direction. It feels like there's a lot of different voices working against each other in some ways. And it is very clearly a parody of Rocky. Um, yeah. Which is the, the weird thing about this. And I think the way this movie plays out. I could see a version of this movie that really works for me. And it is kind of that version that's sort of like a this is Spinal Tap type thing where it is sort of more improvised and it's kind of loose and it's a little bit more cynical about the whole thing. I think Mm -hmm. because the way this movie plays out uh, and it is sort of like riffing on Rocky where it's like this white amateur boxer who gets the shot at a heavyweight championship against the black heavyweight fighter. Right. That's that is the plot of Rocky. Right. Uh, and in that movie, you know, Apollo Creed, he is a little bit lazy in his training and stuff because he's like, ah, oh, I don't need to worry about this. You know, it's it's this, you know, amateur or whatever. He's a chump. And Rocky, like, trains really hard and all that stuff. And they they make it to the match. And Rocky does end up losing, actually. But it's, you know, more it's more of a moral victory. <laughs> right. In any case, like he, he basically ties with Apollo Creed and like in the audience's view, like Rocky actually won the fight and all that stuff. Yeah, and he was this, robbed. Exactly. And it's this big, like, sort of wish fulfillment fantasy. I love Rocky so much. It's a great movie. Uh, But there is this sort of, like, weird racial undercurrent there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And this movie, like, again, functionally, it kind of does the same thing, where it's this white boxer who's kind of taken out from the amateurs. And this is even a crazier situation because he hasn't even boxed in, like, 10 years. And they're just, like, plucking him out and they're, like, getting him ready. Uh, And, you know, Damon Wayans is the heavyweight champion who, like, literally just, like, lets himself go and he just gets, like, really fat. And then at the end of the movie, the fight lasts about 27 seconds because Damon Wayans knocks out <laughs> um, yeah. Tommy Conklin, uh, despite the fact that Tommy Conklin put so much work into it and Damon Wayans didn't at all. And I think that's a really funny concept. But the movie is like earnest enough throughout where it's like it sort of feels like it's playing it straight. And like you're sort of meant to be rooting against Samuel L. Jackson's character. Right. Like, yeah, he's, absolutely. Like, he's the one you're supposed to be like facing off against. And you're sort of setting it up where it's like, oh, Goldblum's going to be the new manager and he's taking over for Sam Jackson and stuff like that. And then that all kind of just goes away in the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, there's a very funny version of that in my head where if the movie was more cynical and much more of like a, a satirical take on boxing and things like that, 
I could really get behind this ending, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, being like this kind of version of Rocky that like completely falls flat on his face. Like that's that's very funny. And there's actually uh, the Lonely Island have a very funny song called Rocky, uh, which is about that exact same thing. A guy challenging Rocky to a fight uh, <laughs> and the guy just immediately getting beat up after like working really hard <laughs> to fight Rocky. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a cool idea, but I think the movie plays itself relatively earnestly uh and it kind of takes away the punch of that idea so yeah yeah i think in the last 20 minutes or so they start to set up the idea you know kind of goldblum gets his in into the organization after being like the muckraker reporter who's gonna take down the pyramid scheme of reverend sultan and all this yeah. stuff and reverend sultan's like hey you want a job and he's like okay never mind and he like <laughs> th- you know which was very funny like that was a fun like that whole thing uh and then he starts to realize like well wait a second this conklin guy he's he might have a shot and if yeah. he does we can take we can still take down the the criminal organization. It's going to be this whole thing that the Reverend Sultan era is going to come to an end. I think is what he says on this in the like in the stands sitting yeah. next to Samuel Jackson. Uh, and then Roper just clocks Conklin and it's over. And then the other guy shows up and they punches him and knocks him out also after the fight. And then uh, nothing changed. This is all for no. There's no reason. Roll credits. I was like, yeah. ah, well. Okay, I yeah. guess they it also wasn't particularly funny. So now what's the point? <laughs> uh, they also do a lot to make Conklin like a fairly sympathetic character too. Uh, like yeah. he's, the, he's the only one in the movie who is like looking out for other people. Like he's planning on spending the money he gets from the fight to help the homeless. Uh, and, you know, he's, you know, against racism in all its forms, he's, like yelling at his manager for making racist jokes and, th- and things like that. Yeah. Like it just feels like they they do a lot to make Conklin feel like. And I think that's part of the point is that, you know, they're they're building him up so they can tear him down but again in like a, a meaner version of this movie i guess is what is what i want to see like if that's the way the ending is going to be i want this movie to like to excuse the boxing term not pull its punches uh, yeah. and like really go for it you know yeah they kind of set him up to just be this like bleeding heart rube that like he care he's like he keeps saying he's gonna donate his money and that's sort of how samuel jackson tricks him into thinking that he is gonna win enough money to solve homelessness right uh and all this stuff but ultimately yeah whatever i'm not gonna think about this movie a whole lot <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think the highlight here, though, is Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, oh, yeah. Who I think is incredible in this movie. <laughs> he is just like this feels like the kind of role that he just excels at playing. Right. It's kind of this larger than life figure that he's really able to just inhabit. And uh, it has the added bonus of his insane wardrobe and big cigars. And it just makes it even better. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It feels like this entire movie, he's giving that speech in Deep Blue Sea. That's like this kind of like, you know, kind of really emotional, motivational, like, but also mean kind of thing that he then gets eaten halfway through by the shark in Deep Blue Sea. But like, that's kind of his entire like persona in this whole movie. You know, he's a con man, basically. He's right. you know, this kind of big shit. He's Don King. He's this big showman kind of thing that's tricking everybody into thinking he's got all the, I don't know, power, whatever. But there was actually there, one really funny joke that got me was when uh, he's talking to Cheech Marin, who's the like head of the boxing organization. I forget exactly. And he's like, like, you need that. to give this guy or you need to give Conklin a rating so my guy can fight him. And he's like, what's it going to take? Sex, drugs, money? And he's like, no. And Cheech Marin says no. And he's like, is it going to be power? And then Marin's like, yes. And he's like, well, then you're fired. And Cheech Marin goes, well, okay, sex, drugs, and money is enough. (laughs) Which was pretty good. So he's, you know, he's just the guy at the top with all the pulling all the strings, basically. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, he does a really great job with that. He's really he's having a lot of fun in the role. There's also a a Pulp Fiction reference uh, in the movie. I don't know if you caught that when uh, he sees. I don't know. He sees a guy with long hair in a suit. uh, And you never see you don't see the guy's face. You see him from the back. And he's like, like, hey, Vincent, where's Jules, man? <laughs> <laughs> 
Amazing. <laughs> Which is a pretty solid reference. This is like two years after Pulp Fiction, too. Uh, uh-huh. So we're kind of in like peak Sam Jackson territory right now, because that's when like he really blew up as an actor right after Pulp Fiction. Uh, and then I think actually and th- this is the same year he came out with uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is one of the best action movies ever. So, wow, look at uh, that. yeah, pretty good year for, uh, for Samuel Jackson performances. But uh, yeah. All right. So Jeff Goldblum is in this movie. What did you think? Of Goldblum, Mike. Um, I think he's really fun. He's one of the one of the more enjoyable parts of the movie for me overall. Uh, like I said, he's kind of this sort of muckraking news documentary guy that's like gonna crack the case or expose the truth of Reverend Sultan's pyramid scheme and the history of that. He's done this kind of thing before, and and we kind of go to him as this sort of Greek chorus voiceover every now and then slash like talking head documentary kind of guy. Yeah, uh, which is very fun, and he's like this kind of. You know, quick talking. I mean, it's Goldblum, so you get it. Yeah, he's, you know, fast talking. He's uh, very snarky and fun. And there's a couple times where I think in the very beginning when he's at the he's ringside and he's like blocking everybody's view. And then they're like, you know, try to start to fight him. And he says, you know, like, peace, my brother to a black guy. And that, like that's and you'll realize like, oh, this is. One, this is the kind of movie this is, because it's like the first five minutes where that's happening. Right. Uh, which is very fun. Uh, and then, yeah, he kind of like disappears every now and then. He kind of pops up sometimes in the first 45 minutes, which, you know, bonus points to this movie for being 90 minutes. That's huge. Yeah, like 90 um, on the dot. It's like yeah. as, as soon as it's, as soon as it's done, it's done. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. So he kind of just only pops up every now and then as this kind of talking head voiceover kind of character uh, until like, you know, sort of the third act where he makes that turn where Sol- Riven Sultan offers him a job and he uh, sells out immediately yeah. <laughs> um, to make some money. And then he becomes like a main character, which is very, very strange. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think he's solid. And I think that turn about half of the movie is really funny. Um, yeah. You know, just being that serious journalist exposing corruption to uh, just suddenly he's a flank for uh, Reverend Sultan. Like he's just yeah. <laughs> suddenly his like right hand guy. Like and that happens so quickly. And like John Levitz gets fired like off screen. <laughs> like he's like getting kicked out as Goldblum takes on the job. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the movie goes on to suggest that he could be the next Sultan, which I think is a really interesting direction for this movie to take where, you know, he starts like Goldblum's arc in this movie is theoretically really fascinating where he starts off as this journalist who's really trying to expose corruption within the boxing world only for him to like theoretically become the guy who is corrupt within the boxing world. Right. I think that would be great. Like, and again, I I feel like the movie completely bails on that idea in the last five minutes when they decide to knock out Conklin in in 27 seconds. Yeah. I mean, he kind of starts to position himself, right? There's that moment later on. I forget exactly the order of events, but like John Lovitz like confronts him and he's like, you know, everyone in the organization wants Sultan gone. Like you got to take him down. You could be you at the top. And he like gets this idea and he's like, hmm, it could be. I'm going to, I'm going to have Conklin be the guy. It's like just short of a literal light bulb popping up over Goldblum's head. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But then Conklin gets knocked out. Sultan remains in power. And what's the difference? Yeah. And then Goldblum uh, decides like, oh, maybe I'll be the manager for his band. And then the movie's over. Goodbye. Yeah. (laughs) uh, But I I do also like at the beginning when Goldblum is the journalist, like it's very clearly not his world too. He's like, you know, like you said, he calls the guy brother and the guy like starts like getting up and about to fight him. He's like at the boxing ring and he's comparing it to King Lear. uh, He's like throwing in Shakespearean references and he's very intellectual and all that stuff, which is which is pretty funny. But uh, but yeah, but I do think Goldblum is good in the movie. I just feel like his character is uh, weirdly used, I guess. Yeah, I think it's like you said, the evidence of it being like two different creative teams kind of having their fingers in this uh, the script. Yeah, definitely. So how do you think this role fits in the roles that we've seen Goldblum play so far, Mike? Um, You know, this was pretty hard. I wasn't quite sure, but I felt like um, 
Well, one I wrote down at, at some point, Goldblum says the words devil incarnate. So I wrote down Mr. Frost because he played the, de- <laughs> the literal <laughs> devil in Mr. Frost. And I don't remember any context because all I wrote down was devil incarnate equals Mr. Frost. So I don't know what he's talking about Fair or enough. why. Uh, but then I sort of realized this like a, uh, a, a sort of subculture movie, which we've seen a few of from uh, Goldblum uh, with Lush Life, which is, you know, about the jazz subculture sure. uh, between the lines, which uh, I didn't realize it's also from a National Lampoon's writer connection. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. So there's that. Uh, thank God it's Friday, just for like that kind of 50s beatnik Greenwich. Oh, no, sorry. Next next stop, Greenwich Village, which is the 50s beatnik uh, Greenwich <laughs> right. Village. And then thank God it's Friday for that 70s disco uh, subculture. Nice. That's uh, an aspect of it that I didn't even think of, actually. So that's really cool. I like that. Uh, I also mentioned that uh, Goblin's a reporter, uh, which he was in Between the Lines and The Big Chill and Transylvania 65,000. Let's not forget about Look at that. That one right there. Uh, and in this movie's attempt to sort to sort of be about race, uh, I think you could draw a connection to Deep Cover as yeah. well. Uh, although that movie does a really good job of feeling authentic, uh, whereas this sort of pays like surface level attention to it and it's trying to you know do it within the world of boxing uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, and and this isn't a Goldblum connection, but this movie did remind me of one that we covered in the Cage podcast uh, back in the day, and that is uh, Amos and Andrew. Uh, oh, which is uh, also a movie starring Samuel L. Jackson uh, that was meant to be a commentary or satire about race that was written by a white guy that ultimately didn't amount to all that much. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I do think this movie is better than Amos and Andrew, uh, although that one has an original Sir Mix-a-Lot song over the credits. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so it's got that going for it. Did you think I was going to say a different movie, Mike? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Snake Eyes, because isn't that all about a boxing fight? I did think about Snake Eyes, too, actually. Yeah, that's uh, the first like, 15 minutes of that movie take place in the boxing ring, I think. Right. Or, I think the rest of the movie kind of like comes in and out of it, too. But like the fight's not happening anymore yeah. uh, after that. But uh, yeah, I, d- I did think about Snake Eyes, too. You're right. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Uh, but all right. So let's let's run the movie down scene by scene. Let's really get into the great white hype. So the movie opens with a really weird shot of scorpions, I think, mating in the desert. I uh, think so. Which... Made me think, was that a reference to the player? Um, because <laughs> because <laughs> there's, isn't that, is it a scorpion in the player or is it a snake in the desert or whatever? It might be a snake in the player. I don't um, remember. But there's like a scene in the desert where you see like a snake kind of or a scorpion or whatever. Oh, I'm blanking, yeah, yeah. blanking completely on what it was. But uh, the, por- the important thing is you're in the desert. There's scorpions. I think they're mating. And then they're run over by a car while Sweet Dreams uh, are made of these is playing. <laughs> I think, I, I, yeah, I'm not really sure because it, it like... It, it has it's like kind of portrayed in the at the beginning, like this kind of like, you know, animalistic combat, like as it's like pa-ching, pa-ching, like as they're like, you know, pinching right. and there's like really exaggerated sound effects. Uh, and then it turns out they're fucking. And there's also like exaggerated, like <laughs> like weird sound effects happening. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, OK, this is the tone in the movie. Like and then they get <laughs> run over. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is just a full farce already in the first 30 seconds. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so you see that and then the, they get run over and you were in line. Las Vegas and it's a montage of hotels in Vegas and all that stuff to do and all that stuff. And it's playing the sweet dreams. I, I, I appreciate the restraint to not play Viva Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, because I think like nine out of 10 movies that show up in Las Vegas ultimately play that song at some point. This movie doesn't. Uh, so it's got that color for it, uh, yeah. which is good. And and honestly, being back in Vegas made me think of the cage uh, movies because there's so mm-hmm. many there are so many Nicolas Cage movies in Las Vegas. <laughs> Most importantly, the one with the Elvis's skydiving Elvises that I can't can't remember what that's Honeymoon called. in Vegas, Mike. Honeymoon, Honeymoon in Vegas. Honeymoon it. in Vegas. I, I would have said Con Air would be most importantly because that well, one, yeah. uh, that that one is the one where John Malkovich gets hilariously destroyed. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's like right at the end of Con Air when they end up in Vegas. Also, yeah. leaving Las Vegas, uh, of, of course. course. Yes. That's a, a classic 
Cage performance uh, and all that stuff. Wasn't uh, uh, the one with Will Dog Eat Dog? Wasn't that Will in Las Vegas also? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a decent amount of Cage Vegas movies for sure. Uh, this oh, is, and, this ne- become... and next, how can we forget next? <laughs> Oh, how could we forget? He's a next? Vegas magician <laughs> <laughs> who can think, see the future like 10 seconds ahead of itself, except for the last hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're uh, let's let's this has become a very cage heavy episode. We got to save save all the good stuff for when we get back to cage. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, Goldblum and Cage, they lead parallel lives, Mike. We, we can't we cannot discuss one without the other. I think, uh, I think you're right. That is the thesis of this podcast that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we were introducing in episode 43. Uh, so it's a journey, Mike. It is. Uh, so Goldblum is a reporter commenting on the match, right? He's like, you know, he's got his camera crew out there uh, and he's talking about it. He's not really commentating, I guess, but he's just like kind of describing the scene and stuff like that. And he's, you know, clearly out of his element. He's comparing it to King Lear and the guy can't see because of Goldblum and he gets up to fight him and Goldblum runs away. That guy is also, uh, I don't know if you mentioned him in the beginning, but he's like a very famous actor also. The guy that he can't, that, that he's blocking his view. Is he? Yeah, he was on, I think, Boston Public. Is that the series, the show he was on? He's been in a lot of stuff, that guy. I forget his name, but he's recognizable. All right. Fair enough. Uh, (laughs) I will look that up later and uh, maybe add it to the show notes. Who knows? But (laughs) but anyway, so uh, the fight is with Roper, Damon Wayne's character, and he wins the fight. Uh, And I really liked him getting off the state, getting off the ring. You know, Samuel Jackson coming up and they're talking and they're interviewing Roper uh, and he's talking about how he considers himself an artist and like, well, the way that guy, the guy fell, it wasn't exactly what I had in mind. You know, it's it's like if you drew the Mona Lisa and you forgot to include the breasts. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the most prominent feature of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so that was a pretty funny line. And like, you know, he's, it's just, he gives you like his mentality as to who he is as a boxer and things like that. And then there's the press conference where uh, press conference where Marvin Shabazz, like this, uh, you know, other boxer who wants a shot at the heavyweight title. He interrupts and, uh, you know, he's it's like this big thing between him and Roper and they're shouting at each other and all that stuff. And Samuel L. Jackson is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. We'll give you a shot eventually. You kind of hold on and all that stuff. And then uh, uh, Sultan kind of gives this silent, like little call me to Jamie Foxx, uh, who is who mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx is a uh, Marvin Shabazz's manager uh, in the movie as well. Right. So I looked it up. It's uh, Shai McBride, who is uh, currently on Hawaii Five O, and was also in Gone with 60 Seconds with Nicolas Cage. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Another connection. Just when you thought we were out of the cage connections, we pulled you back in. Got back in the cage. And now I don't need to uh, write that in the show notes. So that's great. So uh, so there's this press conference. And uh, also, I want to mention Jamie Foxx. Great in this movie. He's really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, he's one of the like also genuinely very funny performances throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's really, really solid. Uh, and so attendance and viewership for boxing in general is down. So Sultan comes up with a plan to promote a white boxer to fight for the heavyweight championship, taking inspiration from Larry Holmes versus Jerry Cooney in 1982, which was basically the exact same thing. And a year before this movie came out, actually, was Mike Tyson facing off against Peter McNeely. Also the exact same thing. I, th- I think Jerry Cooney's nickname was the great white hope in yeah. boxing. Uh, and that's what this movie is kind of playing off of the great white hype. And the uh, kind of thing is like hype versus hope. Like what's it going to be? And all that kind of stuff. Uh, so Goldblum is doing an expose on uh, the Reverend Sultan and his practices. And you see like the intro to it and it's called Sultan and me, the man, the myth, the turban. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really, I really liked, like I said, all the Goldblum, like muckraking stuff. One, because it's like so pretentious. Yeah. And two, it's like actually pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, it's actually 
like it's it's cool and it's funny and it's pretentious, but I think it also does a lot to tell you about who Goldblum's character is. Uh, and like there's shades of his performance and what he does throughout the movie that like informs his turn halfway through where it's just like so, like as soon as he's offered a job, he takes that and he like abandons this whole thing. Yeah, I think all the, the uh, interviews he gives where he like, you know, uh, particularly when he's talking to Shapaz and they can't figure out what car he's talking about. Yes. Uh, which I mean, the whole running bit that Shabazz like pronounces stuff wrong is very funny. I forget what he says instead of biatch. Instead of biatch, <laughs> he says something. He says it wrong, which is yeah, very funny. yes, yeah. I, I forget exactly what it is too, but yeah, he says biatch wrong. I think it's like bioch. I, I don't know. I have no. Idea. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the movie's like already Cadillac, leaving my brain. <laughs> Cadillac Brom Broham instead, and it's like yes. this whole thing. Goldblum's funny, is what I'm saying, I guess. Yes, and there is that scene where he's interviewing Marvin Shabazz and Jamie Fox, uh, and like Jamie Fox is camera shy yeah. uh, in this interview, and like Goldblum's like kind of teasing him about it, and it's it's honestly pretty adorable. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I, mean, I really I think, like that I think moment in that, in that scene too. You know, he's like they they play with like the microphone audio. Like Jamie Fox puts it too close to his mouth, so it's just like, yeah. kind of mumbles, and then it's not. You know, it's like this whole thing, uh, and it's like in camera, quote unquote. Like you're seeing, like as if it is the documentary footage. Yeah, it's uh, like the black and white footage and all that stuff. Yes, rolling. I've got here Marvin Marvin Shabazz, the man next in line to fight James Roper. So that, that's how it should be. But I, I got a bad feeling about this one, Mitchell. Yeah, and, and, and if Sultan doesn't give us a shot at the title and he tries to duck us, then we will sue him. That's right. That's right. And I will support these men. Honorable. I'll, I'll, I'll take it, baby. I'll take it, baby. These are honorable men. Very. Uh, well, yes. No, we, we, we are honorable men, but I work too hard for this. We work too hard for yes. this. Now, I am the number one contender. I'm tired of James the Poodle, Grim Reaper, whatever he wanted to call himself, ducking me. All right, I'm tired of man driving around town in eight Rolls Royces. He ain't fought nobody. I'm still in a bro hand. Exactly. That a what? Uh, uh, a bro, a bro ham. He 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 drives a bro ham. What's bro ham? It's maroon. Well, actually, it's not maroon. What, what it is? It, it, it's Merlot, and it's it's a bro ham. Cut. Have we cut? Yeah. What's a Merlot bro ham? It's, it's like an old car, right? You guys don't know what a Merlot Broham is. I thought it was a breakfast cereal. Rounders, myself. like two. I'm sorry, we got it's a, a Cadillac. Oh. Cadillac. A Brahm. Broham. A Broham. Broham. You say Brahm. I got it. it. Broham. Broham. Rolling. Let's pick up. And again. Action. The Merlot Broham. It's a it's a fine car, but nothing like a Rolls Royce. And you guys are plenty peeved. Yeah, I don't care about the cars. I just want to fight. That's all. Exactly. Like my daddy said, you out there, James, the poodle, pussy, whatever your name is, Roper, if you a man, be a man. Step up. Fight me. You ain't fought nobody. Your daddy said, what? She talking about the, he's talking about the poodle? Yeah. The no, 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 no. It's just a fact. You're growing up. You grow exactly. up in the hood. You become yeah. a man. Exactly. You want to start acting like a man, then you be a man. Just like, just like my father had told me that, uh, when the, when the green grass starts growing, you know, on the other side, then somebody got to cut the lawn. You know, my father said once, uh, when you when you uh, 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 laugh and and the whole world laughs with you, cry, and I'll give you something to cry about, you little bastard. That's what he said. And you know what that's done to me? I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for sure. You're a little camera shy, aren't you? Well, some sometimes, but you know, I'm getting the hang of it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and then they cut, and it cuts like to cat, like to color, like to outside the camera. I don't know that all all those sections were pretty fun. I think uh, I, I like the one. I think the funniest one after, uh, which is later on though, when Goblin makes the turn and he comes out of like the bathhouse, like just drenched in sweat. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, I know what I'm doing. Yes, yeah, it's so good. Uh, so yeah, so they interview uh, Jamie Fox and Marvin Shabazz, and then Sultan and his crew they're watching tapes of white boxers, all of whom getting their asses kicked. Uh, like in each of these tapes. And then Bambi has an idea. Uh, she says, who beat the champ as an amateur? And uh, Samuel Jackson's face lights up and he like realizes what she's saying. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't think of this uh, because there's only one man who's ever knocked out Roper, James, James Roper. And that is, you know, not in his professional career. He's undefeated in his professional career. But when he was an amateur, he got knocked out once uh, by Terry Conklin, uh, which side note his name kept reminding me of Ricky Conlon, uh, who is the boxer that Adonis fights in Creed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's got to be it. Oh, uh, wait, no, in Creed. Never mind. Yeah, in Creed. It's not even – that's what I was thinking. Like, oh, is that like some kind of Rocky reference? And then I realized, like, wait, that's that's got to be like a later Rocky movie, right? I know the Rocky movies very well, uh, and I had to look it up. But, yeah, Ricky Conlon is the evil boxer in Creed. Not the evil boxer, but, like, the one he faces off against at the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and so it just, like, it made me think, like, was Ryan Coogler, like, a big fan of the Great White Hype? Or <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> it's possible. It's definitely possible. Like, maybe that's a subtle uh, connection to that movie. But, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, so they're at. Sam Jackson's place and Shabazz and his crew, they break in with guns uh, <laughs> and then Sultan and his crew, they have even more guns <laughs> like they all just pull out their own. And then Jamie Foxx has this pretty funny line where he's like, does violence really solve anything, guys? <laughs> I mean, <come> on. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, like, you know, Jamie Foxx is always putting on this like hard face and then just immediately caves yes. every single time. Yes, absolutely. Also, one of my favorite lines in the movie is right here too, where uh, I think it's uh, it's Corbin Burnson who's like, you know, they're they're explaining to them why they're like, oh, you you haven't gotten your chance at the title fight yet and that kind of thing. Uh, and Corbin Burnson's like, yeah, we're we're just you know getting all of our ducks in a row. And I think it's Jamie Foxx who goes, ah, it's a duck thing. <laughs> Samuel Jackson says it. Is that Samuel Jackson? Okay. <laughs> yeah, explaining to Jamie Foxx, he's like, yeah, see, it's a duck thing. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But that is a very good line. And uh, th- so they leave and there's this one really weird moment. Does John Lovitz poop his pants yes. in this scene? 100% he pooped him? 100%. Okay, because, yeah, there's a moment where, like, after they leave, like, I think it's Bambi who, like, sniffs the air uh, and, like, acts disgusted. And then John Lovett's like, I'm going to need a change of pants. Uh, yeah, and, and then they, like, Looney Tunes, <laughs> like, <laughs> wipe, like, you know, like, shrink the screen and go to a different scene. It's very right. strange. But I feel like the typical, like thing for that kind of scene like if he peed his pants like that would be like kind of the button to end like i feel like pooping his pants is a little excessive for it's pretty like, extreme it's pretty extreme like i feel like i've seen a version of that where it's you know pee uh and this movie goes a step further and possibly a step too far <laughs> with john lovett's pooping his pants uh but there you go uh so they go off to find terry conklin who now lives in cleveland plays in a metal band called massive head wound which <laughs> <laughs> great band name yeah, absolutely. And uh, they're playing a song by a very prominent 90s artist. And I'm blanking on who it is now. Uh, it was a but, real uh, song. Oh, it was a, it was a real song like by by an actual person, like by wow. uh, like a, a like a, a 90s alternative band. Uh, and I Puddle compl- of mud. No, I have no idea. That's <laughs> yeah. not the worst guess. Uh, it's some, <laughs> it's something more along the lines of like an Eve six, but it's not Eve six. Wow. Uh, 
Corn. <laughs> not corn. Not no. corn. Uh, I may I may have to look that up in a second. Um, but yeah, but he's in Cleveland playing a massive head wound. Uh, and there's this line of women <laughs> that are like <laughs> just coming backstage and like, you know, kind of giving like the yes or no, like nod or shake. And they're just basically coming back to have sex with him. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, kind of a funny gag. And then Sam Jackson's like there backstage and he offers him $10 million, which he can use to help the homeless in return for him coming back to the ring yeah i mean that whole thing is uh pretty crazy and it was like oh man peter berg look at look at him go because like the whole right. musical performance is like just over the top and weird and and uh you know these uh, the assaulted and his crew like in business suits uh and also being black you know in this kind of like punk cleveland uh underground club thing uh is a very like funny fish out of water thing and they play into it in the movie but yeah and then you get to see uh sultan in his like you know full con man i forget exactly how he realizes but i think i think conklin says something about like oh i i donate all my money to the homeless and like you see his you see his eyes light (laughs) up you see sultan's eyes light up it's like ah weakness i can exploit this fool uh and then he kind of tricks him into like, oh, man, you're going to get all this, you know, millions of dollars and you could sell solve homelessness in America. So, you know, you, you get to see him be sleazy uh, Samuel Jackson, which is always fun. Absolutely. By the way, that band, I looked it up. Uh, Local H was the, <sighs> was the band. <laughs> So, I would have never guessed. Yeah. One of those like 90s bands that still have like one song that play on the radio, but not one that you could name. <laughs> yeah. Is that you know? one of the band? Is that the band that was also in the club in? Wow, I can't believe I forgot the movie already. Thank God it's Friday. <laughs> nope. Not thank God it's Friday. Uh, we just watched it where Goldblum is seeing through his eyes. <laughs> oh, Hideaway. 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 Uh, was it local agent Hideaway? Um, no. No. <laughs> but you, I remember that that was an actual band. Oh, yeah. I, I think that was like kind of a semi-popular like metal band in the mid 90s. Uh, yeah. That was in Hideaway. This which is weird because this is supposed to be a metal band, but it's a local H song. <laughs> yeah. Bound for the floor, by the way, is like the big local H song. Uh, throwing that out there. If you, if oh, you listen yeah. to if you listen to alternative forget. radio at any point from 1996 onward, you've probably heard that song at some point. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, Sultan offers him $10 million saying he can basically eradicate homelessness in America with that money, which is obviously not true. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Peter Berg kind of falls for it. And so he agrees to the plan. He's going to go back to boxing uh, and they do a press conference where they announce it. And it's widely seen as like a farce. Like this is a ridiculous thing. Why is this even happening? Right? Yeah. Yeah. All the sports reporters like in the crowd say that <laughs> like that one guy stands up. He's like, this is a scam. Like this guy's not even a boxer. Uh, right. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they call They call him like Irish Tommy Conklin. And he's like, I'm not Irish. And it's like hey, Irish in boxing just means you're white. Just get out. there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and then like one guy like kind of calls them on that. And it's like, oh, the guy's even Irish. And it's like, you know, like and he says something about uh, being Jewish. And, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson like turns it around on him. And it's like, well, you're an Uncle Tom. And it's like, Jews can't be Uncle Tom's. Yeah. And he like turns back at John Lovitz. Like, eh, sure, we can. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually, that actually got a very big laugh out of it. That was solid. <laughs> it's a pretty solid joke. But yes, yeah, so that that happens. That goes down. The press conference, you know, it's, it's crazy and it's wild. Uh, and so it's all going down. P- uh, Tommy Conklin will fight James Roper. And uh, there's a scene where uh, Samuel Jackson is in his office and he's like wielding a sword and he points it at John Lovitz. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't even remember why he was wielding a sword and pointing it at John Lovitz other than he has a sword. <laughs> Yeah, I forget. I think he's telling him uh, that, like, you know, we need to shape the truth and we need to to get this story out there because he's uh, John Lovitz is playing like the kind of PR 
guy or spokesperson, I think, technically. Um, yeah. And he, John Lovitz is saying, like, I can't. I can't. This is too big. I can't pull this off. This will never work. And he grabs the sword and says, like, well, I'm not supposed to commit homicide either. And like goes to <laughs> attack him with the sword or something. I don't really remember, but it's funny. He swings the sword at John Lovitz. That's neat. Yeah, definitely. Definitely solid stuff right there. Uh, so and then I think Levitz reveals to him that uh, Goldblum wants a private meeting. Uh, he apparently has photos of uh, uh, Reverend Fred Sultan. And so he wants to get a private meeting. And so he gets that meeting. He brings his camera crew uh, and he's right outside Sultan's door. And he's like saying, if I if I don't come back, just, you know, no, make sure my story is told. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. People deserve to know. Exactly. Uh, and so he enters the room uh, at Sam Jackson in this giant hot tub smoking a big cigar. <laughs> yeah. Goldblum reveals the photos and it's all Samuel L. Jackson doing like weird sex stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, possibly with underage girls. That seems like kind of implied is, uh, is what's going on with this character. They're all dressed like cheerleaders and Girl Scouts and things yeah. like that. Uh, and so Goldblum has this on him and he's like, oh, I, I want to destroy you. I want to, you know, get you out of this. I want to expose your corrupt practices and all that stuff. And so he's trying to blackmail Sultan and Instead, Sultan turns it around on him and offers Goldblum a job <laughs> instead, yep. which Goldblum immediately takes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I did like that kind of reveal because, right, he says like, oh, I forget. I forget exactly. But it's something along the lines like, oh, well, you know, do you do you want a job? And then we cut to outside the room. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we see John Lovitz getting like, you know, hauled out of the through the doors and thrown in the elevator. Yeah. Well, it's, it's before that. even. Like You cut to outside the room and you see Goldblum emerge and he's like sort of sweaty and shaken. And he's like, OK, put the camera on me. Well, like, well, this fight. It's going to be very incredible, folks. We're really, <laughs> really excited about this. Like, what is racism even? Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's like immediately shilling for the fight on camera. And then as he's doing that, like Lovitz is like getting thrown out of yes. the room and like tossed into the elevator uh, and fired. And uh, Goldblum's team like realizes what happened, that he sold out and that uh, he took over John Lovitz's job. Uh, and so they leave, too, and they enter the elevator with John Lovitz. And I think they like kick John Lovitz in the balls or like stop on his foot or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty funny because the door, the elevator door closes and then Goldblum's team quits and they call the elevator again. And John Lovitz is still there. Yeah. <laughs> like the door opens again. Uh, yeah. And I forget exactly like, or they elbow him in the nose or some, some right. silly shit. Yeah. So Goldblum completely betrayed his team, completely betrayed all the ideals he pretended to have. Uh, and that is one of the funnier things that, uh, that happens in this movie for sure. Uh, and then you see what Roper's doing. Damon Wayans. Uh, he gets a ring from Sultan and he like kind of throws it on the ground and lets his team like fight over it, his lackeys uh, and stuff. And he's not training. <laughs> Right. At all. He's just chilling on a couch with his entourage, like eating ice cream. Uh, and his trainer's coming in like, you, you got to train, man. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'm good. I'll get around to it. <laughs> like, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. He's like chain smoking cigarettes. He's eating ice cream. Yep. And I forget what show they're watching, but they're watching like a soap opera. And they're like all <laughs> heavily invested in it. Yes. And it's very funny. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you see that. And then there's another press conference uh, where they're showing Conklin and, uh, you know, Roper and stuff. And then Shabazz in interrupts again like Shabazz keeps showing up at press conferences just to interrupt them basically right uh he interrupts again and uh you know it's kind of as Tommy Conklin is walking out uh and then Conklin knocks him out in one punch uh and it's the first indication like oh man this kid may have something here yeah I, I kind of felt I thought maybe there was like a wink that that was set up 
between uh, uh, Jamie T- Foxx's character and Rev Sultan. Okay. Because I felt like I think they like share a wink or something. Uh, I don't really exactly remember. Uh, that made me think that. But yeah, he knocks him out, and then and then Goldblum comes in with the wheelbarrow full of fan letters. Yes. Uh, that, that are blank. Which is yeah, very that, funny. That was great. Yeah, he has a wheelbarrow full of letters, and he like let's just pick one at random here, and he yeah. picks up this you know uh, green paper because he's Irish, mm-hmm. uh, and he's reading a fan letter about this little boy named Joey who's in a wheelchair and he looks to Tommy Conklin for inspiration and is like one day maybe because of you I'll be able to walk and that kind of stuff and then you see the page he's reading and it's completely blank he's making it up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just all, uh, immediately evil <laughs> which is which is really funny. That's a really great character turn for him. Uh, and then as the press conference ends, uh, Love John Lovitz is like there, like hiding in the shadows. Uh, and you see, and he like kind of calls Goldblum over. He's like, Psst, and he you know tells him like, hey, you know, the entire boxing world is very sick of uh, you know the Reverend Sultan. You could be the new guy, and when you are, uh, you know, hire me again. I want to be back in the game, like that kind of thing. Right. And that's and that's what kind of gives Goldblum the idea that like, oh, maybe maybe this could be me. This could be my thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's when he you know, starts to actually be invested in Kung Kung training and all and all that. I'm surprised this movie doesn't literally have a light bulb turn on behind <laughs> Cold right. Loom. Like That's also <laughs> the kind of level it's on, because there's another like bit at the end of this like button on this scene where he's like, I don't I don't know how to tell you this, but you, you smell uh, to John Lovitz. <laughs> he's like, yeah, they, they took my apartment away, too, uh, kind of thing. Right. It's like, man, John Lovitz just getting the, the, <laughs> the short end of the deal here. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, this is also followed up by. I think the funniest moment of the movie. Uh, it's like kind of a montage of uh, David Wayans <laughs> and uh, Peter Berg training. Uh, and you see, and there's a moment where you see Roper running uh, and he's like in a sweatsuit and, it, and it's looking like he's like jogging like down the street. Uh, and then it zooms out and he's chasing down an ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, got, I, I did like this kind of like uh, real sports with Bryant Gumble montage because it's like a bunch of talking head interviews with the trainers and and the fighters and everybody. And then. Yeah. And then Conklin like sings his song, like Mr. Roper, Mr. Roper or whatever. Yes. Which is just like, awful. My weapon! And like it's you can tell like he's a metal guy. Like he's yeah. just you know from that metal background, which is kind of fun. Uh there's also a really great exchange where uh, you see Corbin Brunson and Samuel L. Jackson and they're talking they're having a press conference, like during this montage, uh, and they're commenting on the fact that they're pitting a, a black man against a white man, and Corbin Brunson's like, Are we exploiting racism? I don't think so. And all that stuff. And then Samuel Jackson has a great line and such a like sleazy thing where he's like, well, you know, to play at the piano, you need the black keys and the white keys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's fun to see Corbin Birdson, uh because I only know him as as uh, the dad on Psych. So it's right. where he's like this, you know, stiff, hard ass kind of character. Uh, so it's fun to see him like kind of hamming it up in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so after all this, you see Goldblum kind of checking out uh, Tommy Conklin while he's training. John Rice Davies is there. John Rice Davies has no confidence that Conklin's going to win the fight. Uh, he's he's no. very sure that he's going to lose because that's what he was hired to do. Sam Jackson just like basically hired him to make Tommy Conklin look presentable, like, like yeah. to make it look as if this fight isn't a joke. Uh, and that's what he's there to do. But uh, Goldblum really thinks Conklin has a shot at winning this thing. And he talks to Conklin about being his manager if he wins. And Conklin agrees. He thinks that Goldblum is like kind of the right guy to do it. And he hates the whole like kind of corporate stuff about boxing and he hates the racism and stuff. And he just wants to be good at fighting and like just really go- take his shot here. And so Goldblum's like willing to help him out there. Uh, and uh, again, this is where the movie just like Maybe if it was less earnest, 
the ending of this movie would have landed harder for me, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the way that, uh, um, like like we said, Goldblum kind of takes this hard character turn. Uh, but then it kind of peels back a little bit here where it's like, well, maybe he still is that muckraking guy that wants to end all the corruption. Uh, and like, you know, now we start to root for Conklin and for Goldblum and we don't like it's no longer look at this dweeb. It's like now it's the little guy who's going to take down the corrupt organization. Right. And, and then he just gets decked in 20 seconds and it's over and it's like well <laughs> right, right which which again i think a funny idea in a much more cynical movie yeah <laughs> you know uh in this movie it feels a little off but uh so the weigh-in happens and uh conklin's in good shape 202 pounds looking muscular and roper shows up and he takes off his robe and he just has this huge gut like <laughs> yeah this, this awful fat suit yeah it is it looks ridiculous uh but yeah damon wayans look like this gut fat suit he's 238 pounds and everybody's like he's a disgrace to the sport of boxing and you know that kind of thing Uh, their cigars out i think literally (laughs) a monocle probably falls somewhere in the background you know all that kind of stuff uh but but yeah so the fight's looking more and more in conklin's favor uh as everybody is like yeah the champ has really let himself go i don't know if he's gonna be able to do this and all that stuff and then Goldblum is, you know, meeting with Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, Sam Jackson is holding what looks like Alan Grant's Velociraptor claw from Jurassic Park. Yeah, I was wondering <laughs> what that. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. I didn't connect that. Yeah. And it's like a, it's like a top for his cane or something like that. Like he placed it down the table eventually and all that stuff. But it it looked weird. And I was like, is that supposed to be a Jurassic Park thing? Because they were both in Jurassic Park together or like, yeah, <laughs> how does that work? And I don't think they, did they share a scene in Jurassic Park. I don't think so. Right. Uh. You know, I don't think they do. They might towards the end after Goldblum's not saying anything and just laying on a table. Uh, Maybe <laughs> like when it's just because at, at a certain point, Sam Jackson leaves to go to the Velociraptor thing. So I think he maybe is in the same room as Goldblum, but I don't think he and Goldblum ever actually exchange a word or maybe even not in the same shot together. <laughs> I don't think they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they were in Fathers and Sons. Who can forget that? This is true. They're best friends in Fathers and Sons. Aren't right. they? He's like one of the, the play guys, right? Yeah, he's in the play with them in Don Quixote. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then he pulls the gun with the lighter, uh, which is a, always a classic switcheroo in a movie. You know, this is when you, you start to suspect maybe Reverend Sultan knows that Goldblum is planning to undercut him uh, and like he's kind of toying with him a bit. And then now nah, they're just old pals. <laughs> right. So, yeah, but Goldblum is, you know, considering, you know, taking over and like taking him down and all that stuff. Uh, There's also a really weird aside where it cuts away and you see like two security guards like standing outside and one of them just like dances for a couple of seconds. Do you remember this? I don't. Did I black <laughs> out? Did I have a fever dream where I just <laughs> saw, <laughs> saw a security guy doing like a little jig and then like the other guy looked at him weird and that was it because uh, that happened. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that happened. I mean, I'm sure it does because there there is a lot of uh, cutting to like the casino floor where like the sports book where like a lot of people where they show people betting on uh, Tommy Conklin like their their evil scheme is working that like, you know, he's getting all they're getting all the white people to show up when they normally wouldn't. And there's even yeah. that old that old woman, I guess, is the wo- Nedra Vols, uh yeah. is is that old woman. Yeah. Yeah. Who shows up like I'll have one on the clean cut white boy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is pretty funny. So, yeah, there are a couple of like cutaway gags and stuff like that there. And then it's the night of the fight. You know, Conklin's getting ready in his locker room. Uh, this is also one of my favorite lines in the movie where uh, Conklin is like complaining about how racist Jonathan Rice Davies is uh, in the movie. And Jonathan Rice Davies like, now go out there and beat his black ass. And Peter Berg's like, it is the ass of a human being. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty good. I liked it. 
Yeah, solid, solid line. That's pretty funny. Uh, so Conklin has his big entrance. It's an Irish entrance. Uh, like you said, I think mm-hmm. Brian Setzer is the is the guy uh, singing Danny Boy as it enters. Right. And then it gets like more upbeat. And there's leprechauns that are going out with him. There's a he's wearing a kilt. There's the wheelchair kid that they yes. <laughs> must have staged, uh, you know, in like his green wheelchair with the green flag. <laughs> Just getting excited about it, which is great. Uh, and while all this is going on, Roper is still backstage uh, and still not coming out. And he's it's he's taken a while to arrive. And the reason is, is because he's watching Dolomite uh, yeah. <laughs> in his locker room, Amazing, uh, which is uh, a pretty fun touch. And so uh, I, I enjoyed that. And I was very proud of myself for recognizing it was Dolomite before the title Dolomite came on. I was mm-hmm. like, yes. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so he finally gets out there. Method Man is rapping as his entrance and he kind of leads him out there. And then, you know, the fight's uh, about to start. Goldblum like kind of sits next to Samuel L. Jackson and he's saying to him, like, the last days of the Sultanic era of boxing are, uh, right, <laughs> are, yeah. are on its way. And he's and he tells Sam Jackson that Conklin has agreed to let Goldblum be his manager if uh, if the, if he wins the fight. Uh, and Sam Jackson's like, well, we'll see what happens. And all that stuff. And then the fight finally begins. And, you know, there's a moment where Conklin looks like he's going to do pretty good. He gets in like one good punch. Yeah. He, the, the overhand right. He get he clocks him. Yes. Yeah. Gets that overhand right in, which is what they said. Like, you know, he's very good at doing. That was like a specialty back then. It's what knocked him out back when they were 17. And then uh, Roper just annihilates him. Like he gets uh, knocked out 27 seconds into round one and the fight is over. <laughs> Yeah, I, there's I think he says, like, are you trying to embarrass me on TV, which they have to use subtitle because of the mouth, <laughs> yes. mouth guard. And then he just like, oh, OK, this is what's happening. And he just yep. demolishes Conklin. Pretty much. Yeah. So Conklin is completely knocked out and Goldblum just kind of stares off in disbelief and uh, says to Sam Jackson, I, I suppose we reap what we sow. And <laughs> <laughs> Sam Jackson's like, yes, we reap what we sow. And. All that stuff. Everything went according to Sam Jackson's plan, basically. Uh, and so Goldblum kind of goes up to Conklin as he's kind of coming to. And he's like, listen, about uh, about being your manager uh, or whatever. And Conklin's like, I'm never boxing again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he's just going to go back to Cleveland and be in his band. And then Goldblum talks to him about being the manager of his band. And then that's a that's a wrap on Goldblum, basically. <laughs> yep. Exit stage left. Never see you again. Yeah, uh, pretty much. And then Shabazz shows up in the <laughs> bust into the ring one more time. <laughs> yes. And uh, this is pretty good. Shabazz enters the ring. Jamie Foxx pulls out a gun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's yelling at him and, you know, everybody's like, what are you doing here? Like, and Roper's like, what? Like, you get, like, you got to wait for your shot at the title and all that stuff. And then Roper just like kind of lunges at them. The gunshot goes off and the gun gets knocked out of Jamie Foxx's hand. Uh, so Roper starts fighting. Uh, Shabazz and uh, Sam Jackson has another great line uh, that really cuts to the core of his character where he's like, don't give away what we can sell. <laughs> you know? right. And then Shabazz actually knocks out Roper like almost immediately. Also, like right. <laughs> he just knocks him out cold. Roper is like barely on the ground. And then Sultan Samuel Jackson just like rushes over to Shabazz and like lifts up his hand and immediately starts promoting it as a preview for the next big fight. <laughs> right. And then cut to credits. Yeah, the cycle continues. Boxing will remain exactly the same 
as it was at the beginning of this movie. Uh, and then you cut the credits. There's a dance party during the credits, which is kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> you get all the cast members doing their thing. I don't think Jeff Goldblum shows up at the dance party, which, you know, it, it's it's weird because it's a dance party. That's theoretically like Roper's victory party. But also like John Lovitz is there and he's dancing. Yeah. <laughs> which he's already been fired and that kind of thing. So it's it feels more just like, yeah, whoever was around in the cast that wants to be in the dance party, you can kind of just jump up and do a little thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll throw in Buckaroo Banzai as another connection just for the end credits scene. <laughs> There we go. Yeah, I like that. Uh, And then after the dance party, there's one last shot uh, of what appears to be like Conklin in silhouette and two leprechauns um, (laughs) leaving the ring. And it's like supposed to be this like, oh, so sad. And then actual credits. The movie ends. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Stay tuned for a great white hype, too. (laughs) The great white hype year. (laughs) (laughs) The greater white hype. There it is. Yeah, you (laughs) got it. That's got to be the one. Uh, All right. So, yeah, that is great white hype, which, uh, you know, I I think is pretty solid. It's not great, you know, but I don't think it's bad. I think it is all over the place, but it's overall, I think, a fun enough time. I don't think I'm going to watch it anytime soon again, but I, I did enjoy it while I watched it. I mean, that's fair, I guess. It wasn't like offensive, you know, the way uh, uh, Beyond Therapy is, which that is the lowest bar. But so far, everything <laughs> past that has made that has, uh, you know, surpassed that bar. But it's I, I was like not really in, into it. I was kind of just like ready for it to end. And luckily, it's only 90 minutes. So, yeah, it gets a bonus half star just for that. Fair enough. So, uh, all right. Let's hear what the people have to say about the great white hype. Uh, lean into some letterbox reviews right here. I got a two star review from our friend, the poetic critic, who uh, I think is more on your side of this movie than uh, she is mine. Uh, but she writes, there is a satire here that's worth a telling. The execution, though, is not in spelling. The acting's hitting this. Forgive my pun. Although Jackson and Goldblum are fun. Most of the rest don't do much with this script. Too many details. Scenes might have been skipped. I like its sense of place. It has some style. It couldn't stop me yawning all the while. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I uh, 100% agree there with Poetic yeah. Critic. <laughs> so there you go. That's that's uh, the Poetic Critic's uh, latest poem. Here's a three-star review from uh, Justin the Liberty, friend of the podcast-ish. Mm. He's probably never heard of this, but uh, he, he, used to, uh, he used to program a lot of the marathons over at uh, the Alamo Draft House in Yonkers, which we used to go to all the time. And he writes, Spike Lee released two films in 1996, Girl 6 and Get on the Bus, and neither have as much to outwardly do with race than The Great White Hype does, and both are arguably better. But only one of them has Sam Jackson saying shit like, Mono a mono, my dick wants to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> While wearing all manner of ridiculous hats. Uh, yeah. It's also it's also the better boxing movie to have Ron Shelton's name on it from the 90s. Uh, and I had to look up what boxing movie that was. That is Play It to the Bone with uh, Antonio Banderas and Woody Harrelson. Wow. Never even heard of it. Neither have I. Uh, here's a four star review from Matt Ferrari, which reads the great white hype. More like a great time at the movies. Four star. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if I get that far. <laughs> uh, it's a little excessive. I would agree with you, but I couldn't resist uh, the enthusiasm behind, <laughs> behind it. Uh, and finally, here's the last one of three star review from Mike Drew Flynn, which reads as satire. It's sloppy as an ensemble piece. That's also a satire. It's incongruous. And yet the unevenness can't triumph over a movie that cast Jeff Goldblum as a Geraldo esque reporter that suddenly wants to be a boxing promoter. Uh, it's release date rendered it quasi exploitation as there's no way to work around Damon Wayans and Pete Berg being Mike Tyson and Peter McNeely. Uh, once cleared through the scattered mess of a plot, this had to have been gutted by the studio based on how it rushes the runtime. There's a lot of gold. The cast is enormous and on point. Samuel L. Jackson is red hot as 
as a Sultan cosplaying Don King analog, carrying all his Pulp Fiction weight with him. Whenever the central fight is uh, segued to the background and the powers that be are allowed to cut loose, it's amiable but strange, like some kind of blaxploitation major league, complete with Corbin Burnson. Uh, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> MVP Ruth Carter, whose vibrant costume design compensates for the lack of personality in some characters. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think there is a, a uh, you know, I didn't really put it together or maybe subconsciously kind of put it together like the black exploitation angle like they literally watched Dolomite. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's very outwardly about race the whole movie. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, interesting. Maybe, yeah. maybe this movie deserves a little more credit. Maybe a little bit. And I think the Dolomite mention in particular feels like something that probably Reginald Hudlin as the director put into the movie as opposed to it was in the original script by uh, Ron Shelton and the other guy whose name I'm blanking on um, <laughs> the guy from National Lampoon and this is Spinal Tap, uh, because obviously those are two white guys. They probably don't have as much familiarity with uh, black exploitation movies uh, like Dolomite and things like that. I'm completely speculating here, yeah. um, but especially in the mid 90s when, you know, I mean, this was you know years before this is like right as Quentin Tarantino was becoming a major director. So, like, I feel like post that there's a bit more of like a reappreciation for black exploitation films, kind of like a, remer- a resurgence of them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah. I think that that feels more like a black filmmaker's touch uh, than it does the script by two white guys. But yeah, there you go. So yeah, Dolomite featured in this movie, The Great White Hype, which for some reason I keep blanking on the name of this movie, too. Yeah, (laughs) it's weird. It it is. It is one of those things where like I I was writing my podcast stuff, like my prep for this podcast about this movie. And I kept going to Wikipedia and like IMDb and stuff to look up this movie, The Great White Hype. And every time I got to one of those pages, I forgot what I was about to look up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, what movie did I watch again? And what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, but we talked about it. The Great White Hype. It is done. So uh, now we can move on with our lives. Mike, when can we find you on? Where can we find you online this week? You can find me online this week because you originally asked me when. Um, you can find me at. Uh, <laughs> Anytime at, between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> correct. <laughs> You can find me at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. And you can find me online at uh, M Smith Film Blog on Twitter, Mike Smith Film on Letterboxd, and Radio Mike Sandwich on Instagram. Uh, thank you so much for listening to The Complete Works. I'm Mike Smith. That's Mike Decretio. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, you can hit us up at JeffGoldblumCompleteWorks at gmail.com. And you can find the rest of our podcast on Rapture Press alongside the totally original Geek News Podcast, a podcast about comic books and movie news and all that nerdy stuff. You can follow this podcast on Twitter. Twitter at GoBloomPod. Uh, so our theme song was created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own podcast themes at Kyle's Podcast Themes at gmail.com. Our logo was designed by Jacob Honeycutt or at Jacob Honey on Twitter. Uh, so join us next week on The Complete Works. Aliens invade and GoBloom can help stop it as we talk the highest grossing movie of 1996. We reached it, Mike. It's Independence Day. We did it, baby. <laughs> I am excited for this one. And uh, I came to the realization that uh, GoBloom had already starred in the highest grossing movie of all time up to that point, Jurassic Park. Independence Day at the time, the second highest grossing movie of all time. Wow. <laughs> Look at him go. Look at him yeah. really go. Go Bloom for a short time was in the two biggest movies ever. And then the next year, Titanic came out and completely yeah. demolished <laughs> the record. Uh, but wouldn't Titanic have been improved if Jeff Goldblum was in it? That is the thesis that we're going into for our mm-hmm. Independence Day episode. <laughs> Which role in Titanic would you think Goldblum should play, Mike? Billy Zane. I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> I think he would have been perfect. I love Billy Zane and Titanic, but I think Goldblum would have nailed it. Either that. Uh, no, he's pretty young then or young looking at least. So, yeah, Billy Zane.
Yeah, I, I think the Billy Zane role is probably perfect. You know, Picasso, uh, he's he's never going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's my Billy Zane quote from Titanic, but as Jeff Goldblum. All right. I liked it. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, yeah, next week, Independence Day. Very excited about that one. Uh, and keep listening for our bonus episodes of Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And remember to go for the gold bloom. <laughs>